0: My foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew, but the cave was haunted but I found it and tried to get it. To-
1: Thanks for joining us in the Appleseed Studio. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and the Appleseed is an hour that uses the power of great stories, tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more to help you make sense of the world and to help you communicate with the people you love. On the Appleseed, great stories can change your world and the world of your family, too. We've got some great stories to share with you today. A couple of things have come into our minds, and they may seem a little like they... don't have much to do with each other, but we think we can make a connection. The first thing we've been thinking about is the phenomenon of the road trip. Ever been on a road trip? We love road trip stories, and we've got one for you today. It's a performance recorded live right here in the Appleseed Studio from Tim Lowry, the terrific South Carolina storyteller. He's going to share the story of a long road trip all through the American West, through Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and and more. He'll head back through Nebraska and all sorts of other places. It was a lot to take in that trip for a South Carolina boy like Tim, sort of a foreign country out west. And it'll sound something like this
2: I have never in my life seen such a landscape. The only variation of color was a tumbleweed went rolling across the road in front of me, and I lie not, a coyote went right behind it. And there was nobody to tell me I couldn't. I rolled my, down my window and yelled out, The Roadrunner went that way. <laughs>
1: Of course, Tim discovers a whole lot of color and life and adventure before his trip is over, and he'll let us right into the heart of it all in just a moment. And in addition to road trips, we've been thinking about important objects, objects that have sentimental value or that can trigger important memories or that we hold dear for one reason or another. We'll get acquainted with an important object at the center of an old-time radio mystery as a great detective tries to give the home team a chance to win the World Series. You'll hear team manager Mac McClune say to team owner Mr. Dayton,
3: look, Mr. Dayton, if your heart can stand the strain of making one phone call before you go out to play golf, just one, mind you, we can still win this series. A
4: phone call?
3: I want a detective. Pay any fee he asks, but have him here in 15 minutes. A detective? What, Detective Mac? The best in the world, Mr. Dayton. If there's one man can save this World Series for us, it's Ellery Queen.
1: (sniffs) Ha-ha, an Ellery Queen radio mystery. That's coming up this hour, too. But first, how about that road trip story with Tim Lowry? Tim is waiting for us in the Appleseed Performance Studio along with our terrific studio audience. Let's join them, shall we?
2: I'm sorry you have to see me like this. I'm just wearing this old black nasty coat. I wanted to wear my fine fringed leather jacket. I paid a pretty penny for it. I paid more than one pretty penny for it. But the the weather people were predicting, I was going to say weather man, but that's not appropriate anymore. And weather persons just sound so uppity. (laughs) The weather people were predicting precipitation, and I couldn't risk it with my fine fringe leather jacket, so I just wore this old black coat. But I tell you what, since you all were so kind to come to this taping, if you will send me a letter, I will autograph a postcard of myself in that leather jacket and send it to you. You look at me askance. You don't keep a stack of postcards to autograph and send to people when they write you a letter? If you want to be famous, you got to start acting like it. So right after this, we'll set you up with a Photoshop shoot. (laughs) I want to tell you how I got that fine leather jacket. I had a gig in Salt Lake City, Utah. And then three days later, I had a gig in Omaha, Nebraska. And it didn't make sense to fly on an airplane from South Carolina to Salt Lake, do a show, fly home to South Carolina just to repack and fly back halfway across the country to Omaha, Nebraska. So I thought, I know, I'll rent a car and I'll have this opportunity to see the great American West. i will drive 20 hours from Salt Lake City, Utah, to Omaha, Nebraska. So on the day that I left Salt Lake City, I went to the car rental place, and I had just reserved a medium-sized car, but I didn't know what they might have for me. And I was really hoping for a Ford Bronco. That's what you need when you go across the Great American West. Or even better, a convertible Mustang. That would be the car to have. I got a Kia. It looked like a wind-up toy. So I started out across the Great American West in my Kia, and eventually I got out of Salt Lake and passed all of the bedroom communities of Salt Lake, and I was in the high desert. I have never seen landscape like that in all my life. Y'all, when God made the world, he made South Carolina first, (laughs) and he had one of those big 64 Crayola crayon boxes, and he opened it up, and he colored some azaleas fuchsia, and he colored some purple, and he colored some camellias in a dusty pink, and he colored the wisteria in a beautiful Chinese blue, and he made the sky with beautiful sunsets, and after he'd used up all those colors, he came to the high desert of Utah and said, well, I've got this brown. (laughs) I have never in my life seen such a landscape. The only variation of color was a tumbleweed went rolling across the road in front of me and I lie not, a coyote went right behind it and there was nobody to tell me I couldn't. I rolled down my window and yelled out, the roadrunner went that way. But other than that, that's all that I saw until I came to a town called Vernal, Utah. And by the time I got to Vernal, it was lunchtime and I thought, ooh, I, I wanna eat like the cowboys ate. And there was a diner there. You could tell it was a historic building. And I thought, that's the perfect place. So I went in and sure enough, there are all these men in boots and jeans and hats, and they're all sitting on high stools at a lunch counter. And I went right in and bellied my way between two fellas and got up on a stool. Little girl came over and she said, what would you like to have? And I said, well, Cowboys eat chili, right? I'd like to try a good Western chili. Do you have chili? She said, of course we have chili. You want some chili? I said, yes, I want chili. She reached under the counter, pulled out a can of Hormel, cracked it open with a can opener, poured it into a plastic bowl, stuck it in the microwave, and nuked it for two and a half minutes and handed it to me. she said, that'll be $2.95. So I sat there and ate chili from a can that had been heated up in the microwave, and I got back in my car and I drove to the visitor center in Vernal, Utah, and I said, what do you have to see around here? And they said, lots of dead stuff. <laughs> I said, oh, that's like South Carolina. We love dead stuff. We have dead people in South Carolina. Yeah, lots of them, yeah. And I said, uh, so historic homes, graveyards? They said, no, dead dinosaurs. I said, oh, you've got some really dead stuff. I learned that you could drive down the highway and you could turn off onto these trails, and that's what it was. I mean, it was just a trail. I really wished I'd had the Ford Bronco. And you'd drive to the end of this long trail and you'd come up to a cliff where all these old bones embedded in the side of the cliff. And there were archaeologists there and they'd give you sifters and a pickaxe and a shovel and you could help dig and sift and find stuff. And they invited me to help and I said, I'm from South Carolina. I'm not accustomed to getting dirty. So I just took pictures and got back in the car and kept on going. I left Vernal, and after a while, everything started to green up a good bit because I was approaching Denver, Colorado. I was still a good ways from Denver, but everything started to green up, and of course, the land started to rise. The mountains are getting steeper and higher, and I came into this town called Steamboat Springs, (laughs) and by the time I got to Steamboat Springs, it was supper time, and Steamboat Springs is a real cow town. I mean, they used to have cattle drives right down the main street of Steamboat Springs. Now, they do that just once a year with Longhorn Steer, and they're all very well-trained. You know, They never poop in the street or anything like that. And so I thought, oh, this would be the place to get a steak. That's some real cowboy food. And so I found a restaurant that advertised a whole fine array of steaks. I ordered a steak, baked potato, and a salad. And when they brought it to me, the steak was red. I don't mean like rare red, I mean like raw red. And I said, what is this? And he said, it's a steak. And I said, cook it. (laughs) He said, oh, this is cook your own. The grill is over there in the corner. And I said, I am from South Carolina. We are accustomed to being served when we go to a restaurant. He said, well, then let me help you to the grill. So... (laughs) He took me over the grill, showed me how to make a nice rare steak. I sat down, ate my steak. And then I got back in the car and I I drove for a little while, checked into a little hotel. It was dark by the time I checked in, so I really couldn't see anything. And then the next morning, I had scheduled an entire day just to take my time and drive up over the mountains in Rocky Mountain National Park, y'all. I have never been that high without illegal substances. Oh my goodness, 14,000 feet up, snow, even in the middle of the summertime and absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. I was at the highest visitor center in North America, right there in the top of the park, and they had these great big picture windows that were completely covered in a snowbank, So you couldn't see a thing. It just looked like big white movie screens because of all the snow piled up against the building. And the park ranger, he said, oh, he said, sometimes we have a lot of snow and it takes it all summer to melt off. And he said, if you want some good camera views, just go out and do what all the other tourists are doing. Just climb up on top of the snow and you'll be standing on top of this building, actually, and you can see a very panoramic view and take photographs, so I went up there, and I realized that when you're on the top of that snow bank, so now was about 14 th- 14,030 feet in the air, if you stood on your left leg with your right leg pointed back toward the west, and your left elbow pointed toward the east, and you rotated slightly at a 90-degree angle, you could get cell phone reception. <laughs> So I called my wife, who was back home, and when she answered, I said, guess where I'm at? And she said, I I have no idea. And I said, I'm 14,000 feet up in Rocky Mountain National Park. And she said, oh, great. What are you seeing? I said, oh, it's it's very pretty. I I didn't want to carry on, because she really wanted to come with me on that trip, and she wasn't able to, and I, I didn't want to make her feel bad. She said, oh, I know you. What are you seeing? I said, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I've been crying for 45 minutes. It's absolutely fabulous. She said, have a good time. I hung up, got back in the car and I went down and down and down and down the mountains until I came to Estes Park, Colorado. Lovely little mountain town. They were preparing for elk rut season. Y'all, that is something you have to brace yourself for. This is a family show, so I'll just leave it to your imagination, but I have never seen animals conduct themselves like that in South Carolina. And then I drove on over toward Denver, I spent the night in Denver, and the next day, I learned when I was at the hotel in Denver that nearby in Golden, Colorado, up on Lookout Mountain, I could visit the grave of Buffalo Bill Cody. And I thought, oh, I would love to see that. So I went over to Golden, and I drove up Lookout Mountain right at sunset time. And everybody goes up there to see the sunset. Buffalo Bill wanted to be buried on the top of Lookout Mountain because from there, You can look back toward the west and see the Rocky Mountains or you can look directly east and you can see the Great Prairie. And he had had a life of adventure in both of those places and he wanted to be buried between the two. So the gift shop was open. The the museum was closed for the evening, but the gift shop was open. And before I went into the gift shop, I went up to pay my respects to Buffalo Bill. And there's a, a very nice grave site there. And then right next to it is a place for his wife but I don't think she's in there. I met her in the gift shop. I'm convinced of it. She runs the place. That gift shop was everything that Buffalo Bill ever was in his life, from tacky t-shirts and bumper stickers to high-end leather jackets with fringe and turquoise beading. It was fabulous. And the lady running the place had long gray iron hair that came way down to her waist. She had big, beautiful, Indian jewelry on every knuckle of her bony hands. When I walked in, she said, hey honey, welcome to Colorado, how can I help you? (laughs) And I said, oh, well, I'm just here kind of looking around and thought I'd take in the sight of Buffalo Bill's grave and just looking around in the gift shop. I noticed those fabulous leather jackets you have. She said, yeah, honey, I got one that'll fit you perfectly. You want to try them on? They were behind closed glass because they were very, very expensive. And I said, oh, I don't I don't think I could afford one of those. They're lovely to look at. She said, no, honey, you could, you could try them on. I said, really, really? And she unlocked the cabinet and she slid the glass open she said, said, just help yourself. I gotta go out- outside and take a smoke. I didn't know she smoked. <laughs> So she went outside to take a smoke break, and I tried on all of those jackets. They had one of those triple mirrors, you know, so I could see myself six times over and from every side. Oh, it was fabulous. And then when she came back in, she said, that one looks real good on you. You should, you should buy it. And I said, I really can't justify the expense of this jacket. I, my wife didn't get to come on the trip. If I came home looking better than she does, then there would really be problems. So I thanked her, and we hung it back up, and I went on my way. The next day, I left Denver and I traveled across southern Nebraska to see absolutely nothing. (laughs) Never in my life or the life of my wife have I seen so many miles of absolutely nothing. I mean, there was not a tree, there was not a bush, there was not even a cow. I think they put all the cattle away for my benefit so I'd have the full experience. I mean, eight hours of nothing. I finally did see the State Tree of Nebraska. It's a telephone pole. Other than that, absolutely nothing. And I started to panic because there wasn't even any place to eat. You know, back east where I'm from, you're driving along on Interstate Highway, there's a big blue sign and it'll say gasoline, and then it'll list under that, you know, different gasoline stations, Shell, Sunoco, and you can pull off and find some place to gas up. There'll be a sign that says food and it'll list places where you can eat. Finally, I saw a sign that said food. And so I took that exit in pure desperation. And when I got to the top of the ramp, there was another sign that said, McDonald's, 47 miles that way. Burger King, 32 miles that way. I wish I'd bought that fringe jacket so I could chew on the fringe. I drove and drove and drove, and finally I came into Hastings, Nebraska. Now that was the one place that I had Googled ahead of time for my trip because I wanted to visit Hastings, Nebraska. They are the birthplace of Kool-Aid. And I live in Somerville, South Carolina. We are the birthplace of sweet tea. And so I thought, we have a kinship. I should go and see this. Yes, we were on opposite sides of the war, but now we are reunited to rot the teeth of children everywhere. So. I pulled off the main road and I drove 10 or 12 miles down through some cornfields into Hastings, Nebraska. I had taken a big basket full of sweet tea products from our museum in Somerville to the museum that was about the birthplace of Kool-Aid in Hastings. And I went in and I, I was wearing my seersucker suit so that I would look very official. And I went in and I handed that basket to the girl at the reception counter and told her that I was from the birthplace of sweet tea and our mayor had sent his compliments and I was serving as an ambassador from the sweet tea trail with this uh, gift basket to the birthplace of Kool-Aid. And she said, would you like to see our museum? And I said, oh yes, I would. And she said, that'll be $5. (laughs) And I said, I'm from South Carolina. And she said, that'll still be $5. (laughs) So I paid $5 and I saw the museum. It was wonderful. Kool-Aid got its start as a product called Fruit Smack. And it came in little glass vials, but they broke when they would try to send them through the mail. So then they learned about the dehydration process and they started making powdered Kool-Aid. There was a display of the great big red Kool-Aid man. Do you remember him back in like the 1970s and 80s on the TV commercials? He'd bust through all those blocks of ice and yell out, oh yeah! I got my picture made with the Kool-Aid man. It was great. And then I asked the people at the museum, I said okay, I'd like to eat some food before I travel on to Omaha and uh, I'd like to try something local, something with local flavor. And they said, you should have a runza. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, it came over from Eastern Europe with early pioneers to this area. And it's a steamed bun stuffed with spiced cabbage and ground beef. And I said, I would eat that if they cook it for you. They said, yeah, they cook it for you. I said, okay, so point me to a runza. So I went to a restaurant called runza, because they serve runza and fries, of course. So I sat down with my runza and fries. Being alone, I struck up a conversation with a couple ladies who were sitting in a booth next to me. They were both farmer's wives. It was a, a mother and an adult daughter. And I was telling them about my trip across the great American West. And I told them about eight hours across the prairie of absolutely nothing. And they said, you're genuinely excited about this, aren't you? And I said, yes, I've only read about it in books, but I've never seen it for myself. And they said, we avoid that drive at all costs because it's so boring, it'll make you suicidal. I I said, well, I did see one thing that was particularly interesting. Just as I turned off the main highway to come into Hastings, there at the crossroad, there was a feed lot y'all. The smell would (laughs) knock you back. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of cows just eating and doing what they do after they eat. They pushed the manure around with bulldozers. I mean, there were mountains of it. They should have had a visitor center at the top of one of them. It was ridiculous. And I said, what do you do with that? And she said, oh, she said, there's a lot of money right there. That's the smell of money if you're from Nebraska. I said, really, how does that work? One of those farmer's wives, she said, well, she said a lot of that is plowed back into the soil and we grow a lot of corn from that. She said some of it is processed into methane gas and bottled and used as a fuel for power sources and such. She said, and then a lot of it is uh, diluted and put into big yellow bags called black cow fertilizer. I said, I know that. I put that on my tomatoes back in South Carolina. You can buy it at the hardware store. She said, sure. That comes from Nebraska. She said, there's plenty of money in manure. Of course, you being a professional storyteller, you would know that. (laughs) With my hand up, that is exactly what she said to me. I said, I have found my people right here in Nebraska. So I, I did my work in Omaha, and then I turned in my rental car and flew home, and the minute I got home, I said to my wife, wife can I please, please, please have one of those fringe leather jackets from the Buffalo Bill Museum? And she said, I tell you what, if you can get three clients to call you and ask for stories on a Western theme, I'll let you buy that jacket. So a day or two later, a school principal called me and he said, do you have any stories about Lewis and Clark? And I said, they wore fringe. I've seen it in the encyclopedia. That's one. (laughs) And then another school called, and they said, we'd like some stories about pioneers. I said, ooh, that's two. And then a third school called, and I took matters into my own hands. And when I answered the phone, I said, this is storyteller Tim Lowry specializing in stories of the Great American West, Lewis and Clark, pioneers, and Buffalo Bill. And they said, we don't really care what you tell as long as they're good stories. And I said, perfect. It's going to be stories of the Great American West. And then I hung up from that call, and I called the Buffalo Bill Museum, and a very familiar voice answered the phone, hello. Hello. I said, I don't know if you remember me, when I was in your museum, I was dressed in a seersucker suit. She said, oh yeah, honey, I already boxed that up and got your name on it. (laughs) Shipped it to South Carolina, and now I'm the proud owner of a very fine fringe leather jacket.
1: The story was called How I Got the Jacket, and the storyteller with Tim Lowry, having come all the way from his home in South Carolina to visit us in the Appleseed studio. We love road trip stories so much, and I've always wondered if part of the reason we love road trip stories so much is that they serve as kind of a miniature illustration of what it's like to take the big road trip, the road trip of a person's Life, right? (laughs) Uh, Filled like Tim's road trip with ups and downs, long stretches of no color at all, and other stretches filled with so much color it makes you cry and adventures that bring you into contact with people who seem a lot like you and other adventures that bring you into contact with people who don't seem anything like you. And, of course, it's full of the things you acquire and the reasons you acquire them. I even feel a resonance with Tim's calls home to his wife to check in on the road trip of my own life I feel like I try to call home as often as I can. And for me, a person of faith, that means checking in with my Creator, my higher power, with God, to let Him know how things are going and to recount the adventures I'm having. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. Up next, we'll spend a moment around the desk with a little talk back about Tim's story. I'm Sam Payne. We had the great opportunity to gather in the Appleseed Performance Studio and listen along with our terrific studio audience to uh, that rip-roaring tale uh, uh, from Tim Lowry, the wonderful South Carolina storyteller, about how he got that jacket. And uh, talking about that story around the desk with me are our producer, Brian Tanner. Brian, it's great to have you with me. Hey, y'all. Good to be here. (laughs) And also Lacey Ivy, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, good to be here. Lacey,
1: when you hear that story from Tim Lowry, I mean, there's just so much, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you uh, you can hear the audience even acknowledging some of those places that they know and have been and and even places that they've, uh, that they are familiar with, that they're hearing Tim Lowry talking about seeing for the first time. You know, there's a lot of fun in that. Um, Where does that story take you?
0: I kind of related a lot with the audience of recognizing all these places, particularly in the West, that he was referencing. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me, not too long after all the pandemic stuff had started, my family went to go visit my grandpa. Hmm. And he had just recently moved to Colorado. Yeah. And we made that exact drive through those mountains, and it was raining the whole time. <laughs> we also made it with six people in, a, in an expedition and a dog a dog that's motion sick and kept throwing up every couple of hours. But I just was brought back to that. And I don't think I'd been in a car that long with my family since I was about seven. (laughs) And it was just fun to live in that moment with them, be all together again, all my siblings and my parents and just have that time as frustrating as it was a little bit. But just to have that time to be together and to enjoy that scenery and to look back on it.
1: There's nothing like the ups and downs of a road trip, right? Mm-hmm. They're, all of those things are memorable. Oh, yeah. Right? And once you get a little distance from it, 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 it they're all fun memories. They're better. <laughs> they're, better or they're better now. They're
5: better, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Brian? Where did that story take you? You know, I could relate hard to that story of just seeing a piece of piece of clothing and being like, "I want that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I lived in Brazil uh, for a while uh, many years ago, and when I got there, I saw all these mailmen zipping around the streets and they had these bright yellow polo shirts on (laughs) that had a Brazilian flag on one sleeve and the the symbol of the coheos, the Brazilian post office on the other side. And just as soon as I saw those, I was like, I want one of those shirts. You know, and (laughs) after I'd been there for about a year, I actually met a mailman and I just asked him like, is there any way, do you happen to have an extra shirt (laughs) that I could have? And, um, uh, when I was preparing to leave that city and he knew it would be the last time he saw me, he pulled me aside and he had this bag and he said, okay, here you go. You didn't get this from me. Like, you'll never wear it in Brazil. This is totally top secret. And he gave me one of those shirts, <laughs> 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 which I don't think he was supposed to give me. But uh, it's one of my most treasured shirts. I don't wear it very much anymore because it's starting to get kind of frayed and everything like sure, that. But I'm yeah. just like, it holds so many memories for me. Yeah. A, 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 an important object can
1: really be uh, a, a key to unlocking a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't wear the shirt, you you, you see it in the closet and exactly. the memories come <laughs> flooding back, right? Well, uh, there are memories for me, too, as I listen to this story by Tim Lowry. And here's one of them as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
0: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed.
1: My mother's people hail from Duluth, Minnesota. My grandfather, the son of Greek immigrants, grew up there, went to school there, and left for the war there. And he came back from the war there and married my grandmother, the pale Scandinavian. They struck out then to seek their fortunes, first to the Pacific Northwest, and then to California, where they lived for good. So for many, many years, the family reunited there in California, in the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge for family reunions, but in 1983, when I was 12 years old, my grandmother and her sisters back in Duluth decided to hold a reunion there in Minnesota, and we all decided to go. My grandparents drove their little brown Mercedes from California to our house in Utah, and then we all drove in caravan toward Minnesota. The Mercedes led the way, and our big black Econoline van followed. We made the trip in three days, camping at KOA campgrounds along the way. We saw Mount Rushmore, Jewel Cave, Wall Drug, the Corn Palace, and we got hugged by relatives till we couldn't breathe once we arrived in Minnesota. We visited the family farm in Cromwell and swam in Lake Superior, And we heard stories about how people met and married, and in a little church in Duluth, we did a show that included a play about Jacob Mattson, the Scandinavian immigrant from whom we all sprang, played in this little play by my Uncle Mike. And we got a performance from Uncle Maynard, who worked on the radio as a young man and could still sing the theme song from his morning radio show in the 50s, even though he'd since had a stroke that robbed him of a lot of the power of speech. And when the reunion was over, we drove home. But somewhere along the first leg of that drive home, the air conditioning went out on the Econoline. So we drove at night so as to keep cool, wound up driving through the whole night actually, through the most spectacular thunderstorm I think I ever saw out over the Great Plains. We did the whole trip from Duluth back to Utah in 22 hours. And we remembered the trip for decades and decades. And then, magically, emails began circulating that there was going to be another Matson family reunion in Duluth, Minnesota. And my siblings and I were all excited to go. And by now, we were all grown up and could afford the airfare. But then one or another of us, I think it was my brother Joe, floated the idea that mightn't it, just mightn't it be a load of fun to get the old road trip gang back together. At least the ones of us who were little kids together on that trip so long ago. And head for the shores of Lake Superior by way of that same old route we took back in 83. What an idea. We were the parents now. Of course, me and my brother and his wife and my sister and all our kids. So we packed tents and sleeping bags and food into a Honda CRV and a little Toyota Echo and a rental car. My sister had come from England to join us. And we drove to Mount Rushmore and Jewel Cave and Wall Drug and the Corn Palace, staying at KOA campgrounds the whole way. And we got hugged by relatives who were 25 years feebler, but still great huggers when we got to Minnesota. And we swam in Lake Superior, and we visited the family farm in Cromwell. And we sat around and played guitars and recorded the story of my grandfather's adventures as a prisoner of war in France. And in a little church in Duluth, we sang sacred choral music together. And when the reunion was over, we drove home. And the drive home was... Well, it was a disaster, and also (laughs) perfect in a way that no one could have expected. See, somewhere on the first leg of that drive home from the reunion, the air conditioning went out on my brother's Honda. So we drove at night, so as to keep cool, and wound up driving the whole night through the most spectacular thunderstorm I think I ever saw out over the Great Plains. And we did the whole trip from Duluth back to Utah in 22 hours. Unbelievably, but totally true, it all went down exactly like it had in 1983. It was fantastic. And the message to us all seems to be a simple one. Those who don't learn from history are sometimes blessed to repeat it.
0: Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it on the appleseed.
1: Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And that kind of storytelling, of course, can make for memories that last a lifetime. Thanks to Lacey and Brian for joining me today around the desk. Lacey, thanks for being here. Thank you. Brian, you too. It was a lot of fun. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. If you like baseball and you like riveting detective stories, we've got a treat for you. It's a radio mystery from Ellery Queen, Gentleman Detective, from 1939 to 1948. Folks would gather around their radios to try to solve a new case each week, introduced by Ellery Queen himself. It sounded like this.
6: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In tonight's story, Nikki and I quite unexpectedly become involved in the crucial game of the World Series. I call it The Adventure of the World
1: Series Crime. <laughs> I love the organ in this episode, playing variations on the classic tune, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Ellery Queen was actually the pen name of a couple of mystery writers and real-life cousins, Frederick Danae and Manfred Bennington Lee. Those guys kept America up to its armpits in mysteries for decades. They were Ellery Queen novels, magazines, films, TV shows, Ellery Queen radio mysteries, and more. So, here's the setup to the adventure of the World Series mystery. History. Sparky, the slugger for the Eagles, has struck out, losing game six of the World Series to the Larks and tying the series up three games to three. What's Sparky's problem? Team manager Mac McClune pays a visit to the team owner, Mr. Dayton, to talk it over.
3: Want to see me, Mr. Dayton?
4: Go, oh, come in, Mac. Yeah. Mac I am leaving you in complete charge.
3: Going away today,
4: Mr. Dayton.
3: I notice you have your golf clubs already.
4: Mm, yes, I'm running up to the country club. I, I couldn't stand the strain of the final game Mac. My uh, heart, you know.
3: Yeah. go ahead. I'll phone you the result.
4: Well, it's not as if I were running out on you or the team, Mac. Oh,
3: it's not, Mister Dayton.
4: Mm, you'll uh, you'll bench Sparks,
3: of course. Thought you were leaving me in charge. But, my dear McClune, He's had half a dozen chances to win the series in the last three games, and what's he if done? If Sparky but... goes, I go. Oh, he couldn't
4: bat a ball with a coal shovel. He'll bat a ball.
3: Bat bat. Oh, what a fool I've been. Of course, the bat.
4: What are you raving about, Mac?
3: Look, Mr. Dayton, if your heart can stand the strain of making one phone call before you go out to play golf, just one, mind you, we can still win this series. A phone call? I want a detective. Pay any fee, he asks, but have him here in 15 minutes. A detective? What detective, Mac? The best in the world, Mr. Dayton. If there's one man can save this world series for us, it's Ellery Queen.
1: <laughs> Enter Ellery Queen, gentleman detective, and his entourage secretary and sometime love interest, Nikki Porter, Ellery's dad, the police inspector, and hard bitten Sergeant Veely. They all show up to get the scoop from Mac McClune, who fills them in on the details of a case with the World Series in the balance.
6: Hello, Mac. Uh, hello, Ellery. You know my father, Inspector Queen? The Inspector. Hi, Mac. Sergeant Vealy? Hi. And this is my secretary, Nikki Porter. Miss Porter. When they heard you wanted me on a case, Mac, I couldn't shake them off. <laughs> There's anything we can do to help the
4: Eagles win, Mac.
6: Thanks, Inspector
4: Queen. We're Eagle fans, all of
6: us. We need them all, Miss Porter. I got a weak
3: salary on the Eagles, Mac. You and a flock of others, Sergeant. <laughs> where is uh, Mr. Dayton? In a place where he won't bother us. Ellery, uh, if you can solve a mystery in three hours, we've still got a chance to win. If you can't...
6: Doesn't sound like Mac McClune talking. Three hours. Give me the facts.
3: Well, Ellery, you know ball players. They're all kind of superstitious. And... Yeah. Remember how
4: Babe Ruth always touched second base on his way in
3: from right field at the end of every inning? Sparky's worse, Sergeant. He's got a pet bat.
6: Without it, he's just a bummer. Huh? Uh, hold it, Sergeant. Mm. Mac, what happened to Spark's bat and when? Well, the morning after the third
3: game, Sparky told me about it, but it went clean out of my head. Somebody stole his bat. Uh Aha.
6: If Sparky gets back his bat... You think you'll snap out of a slump, Mac? Inspector,
3: I'll eat your badge in the larks dugout if he don't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, after the visit to Mac McClune, Ellery takes the case. I mean, of course he takes the case, right? And the first stop is to pay a visit to Sparky himself, the slugger in a slump. Now, during the series, Sparky and his brand new wife, Lily, are staying in an apartment owned by Mr. Dayton, the owner of the Eagles. After all, Mr. Dayton is headed out of town with his golf bag to wait out the series, right? Let's listen in on the visit with Sparky and Lily.
3: Mac, come on in. Well, hello, Sparky. Uh, this is Inspector Queen, his son, Ellery, and Miss Porter. Howdy.
4: I'm oh, um, a meet to missus. Lily, Hi, meet Inspector Sparks. Queen. Hi,
6: Gee, it's awful good of you folks to help Sparky.
4: I reckon I'm past being helped, Lily. Maybe not, Mr. Sparks. Uh, when did you first discover your bat was stolen? Well, Mr. Queen, I always put the bat in the hall closet there. The first thing I woke up the morning of the fourth game, I... Well, I look in the closet, and Uncle Sam, that's my pet name for the bat, you see. Sparky calls everything we own by a pet name, Mr. Queen. The bat was missing, Sparky, when you first looked in the closet that morning? No, Inspector. That time Uncle Sam's standing there all right. But then all that morning we have visitors, and when they go away and Lily and me get ready to mosey over to ballpark, why... I opened the closet door and Uncle Sam's gone. How many visitors did you have? Wasn't it three, Lily? Oh, four, Sparky. Four visitors. Well, that means one of them must be the thief. I reckon so, Miss Porter. Uh, I wasn't counting Mr. Dayton, Lily. He's not exactly a visitor, this apartment being his'n. Uh, Mr. Dayton come first. He forgot to take his golf bag with him when he gave up this apartment. So he comes to pick it up. Uh, tell Mr. Queen who the other three were, Sparky. Okay, Mac, uh... Uh, first, there was Pigoli. Pigoli? The big time gambler? I smell a rat.
6: And what did Mr. Pigoli want? Well, it's, uh, it's sort of personal.
4: Oh, now, Sparky, you mustn't hold anything back if you want Mr. Queen to help.
6: Lily's
3: right, Sparky. Well, Mac. Now, I look don't here, Ellery. Sparky's the idol of sports fans all over the country, and he deserves to be. He sets a good example for the kids. He don't drink, don't smoke, a square shooter, but he's got one weakness that's going to get him in a heap of trouble.
6: It
4: already has. I know. I read about it in the papers.
6: That's where Pagoli fits. Gambling. Looks that way, Dad. Commissioner, had you on the carpet about it, didn't he, Sparky? Mm, yeah, Inspector.
3: But Sparky won't listen. He wastes most of his dough paying off. Oh,
4: gee, I've tried so hard to make him stop. I, I even refused to marry him until he promised to quit. Only he he didn't quit. I, I reckon you'll have to excuse me. No,
6: Lily... Nicky and keep Mrs. Sparks' company in the next room. All right, Ellery. Sparky, who were the other two visitors you had? Who came after Pagoli?
4: After Mr. Pagoli comes calling.
6: Collins. Manager of the Larks?
4: Yep, and uh, after Collins comes Buck Fisher.
6: Uh, Fisher's the first baseman on your own team, Mac, isn't he?
4: Yeah. Sparky
3: beat Buck out of the batting
4: championship by three
6: points. Mm, less than two hours left. Time's running out. Dad, you and Mac tackle manager Collins the Larks. Nicky and I will call on the vanquished Eagle batsman Buck Fisher. You'll find both of them at the stadium now, Ellery. Good. That saves us time. Dad, we check with each other at the stadium. Sparks can give us the other details
1: on the way over. Hurry. Hurry and the gang find out that not only does Sparky have a gambling problem, but he's placed an enormous bet on his own team, the Eagles, to win the series. Now how's Lily going to feel about that? Also, after only a few minutes in Sparky's apartment, suspects abound. Was it Pigoli, the big-time gambler, hoping to cash in on a World Series win by the Larks? Was it Collins, the manager of the Larks, the opposing team? Was it Buck Fisher, the Eagles' first baseman, who was about to lose a season-long batting contest with Sparky? Or how about Mr. Dayton, who owns the Eagles and also the apartment? Ellery and the gang race around, tracking down each of the suspects, Pigoli, Collins, and Fisher. They have only one question for each of them. Were they wearing an overcoat or carrying any packages as they visited Sparky's apartment? But none of the suspects was. How could any of them possibly have sneaked a bat out of the apartment under Sparky and Lily's nose? Time is running out, and the big game is about to start.
4: Inspector, you learned exactly as much from Collins as Ellery and I did from Buck Fisher. Yeah, yeah, Nicky, a great big goose egg. Uh, Ellery, the game will be starting in a few
6: minutes. Uh, are we getting anywhere? <laughs> well, Sergeant... Ah, uh, we haven't even got the first base. Ellery, we're no nearer finding that bat than when we start. I wouldn't say that, Dad. Ellery, don't tell me you know where... Yes, I, I know where Sparky's bat is, Nicky. There's only a 50-50 chance it's still there. Dad, step aside with me. I'll tell you what to do. Now you teleport.
4: Ellery and his pesky secrets.
6: Yeah. I wonder what's cooking. two hours since dad made that phone call Nikki, and no sign of anybody you'll
4: wear out the sidewalk ellery Ah,
6: two hours waiting at the ball player's entrance and we could have been inside with dad and veely watching the game Uh, dad what inning is it
4: last of the night son Uh, what's the score now sergeant still the same miss porter one to nothing favor the larks oh give up ellery it's too late now you you must have been wrong this time Nikki,
6: i tell you i wasn't wrong i couldn't have been how can I go in there and face Mac McClune without that pet bat of sparkles?
4: Well, you can't do the impossible, Ellery. He gave you only a few hours. What's that? Nikki, this is it. What? A police car? What, Ellery? You, hey,
6: Ellery, Queen? Yes. Here it is.
4: The bat. Hey. Got it. Are we in time, Mr. McLoone?
3: By the snakes of St. Patrick, it is. It's Sparky's bat. Hey, Sparks! Floyd, Floyd, call Sparky back. He's on his way to the plate. Right? Went
4: right for
3: the police department. Hey, how's it stand? Oh, we're behind this back. the same as yesterday. One to nothing. Last the ninth bases. Fall two out and Sparky up. Sparks! Sparks
6: get a hit. Any hit it will drive in two runs.
4: And we win. Sparky, take
6: the lead out of your feet. Hey, what is it, Mike? You're not benching here. Your You're bat, Sparky, your own
4: bat. Here, now go on out there and use it. Uncle Sam. Don't you worry, Mac. Good old Uncle Sam won't let you down. One side, fellas.
1: So they found it. They found Sparky's bat, Uncle Sam. But how did Ellery Queen figure out such a baffling case? Well, as they sit in the stands and watch Sparky at bat, the gentleman detective explains. But
4: Ellery, where did you find
6: the bat? That was simple, Nicky, once I knew the facts. Only four people, Dayton, Pagoli, Collins, and Fisher, visited Sparky between the last time he saw the bat in the closet and the time he saw it was gone. So obviously, one of those four stole the bat from the apartment.
4: Well, I said that long ago, Ellery, but which one?
6: The important question wasn't who took the bat, Nicky, but how. How was the bat taken out of the apartment under Spark's nose without Spark seeing it? Strike! After all, a bat is a sizable object, 36 inches long and a solid hunk of hickory. So that's why you asked about the packages and the top coat, sir. Right, Dad. Ball one. There was one <laughs> article taken out of that apartment that was big enough to conceal a 36-inch baseball bat. But Sparks said nothing went out, sir. Wrong, Dad. Sparks said one thing did go out. Remember? Dayton's golf bag. Dayton? The owner of the Eagles? The one who lent the Sparks' his apartment? That's right. Dayton came back for his golf bag, Spocky said.
4: A- and with the top zippered over, it'd hold a baseball bat and not be seen. Now,
6: strike two. Now, either Dayton put the bat in his golf bag or someone else did. If Dayton were the thief, the first thing he'd do once he was out of the hotel was get rid of the bat. But if someone else put the bat into Dayton's bag and Dayton hadn't yet looked inside, the bat would still be there. So, Nikki, Ellery told me to phone the chief of police nearest to Dayton's country club. Chief rushed to the club, found Dayton's bag still unopened. And the bat inside.
4: So Mr. Dayton can't be the thief.
6: And there's both too. Then,
4: then who stole the bat? Who did it? Well, who hid it in Dayton's golf bag?
6: Well, who was in the apartment when Dayton took away his bag? Not Pagoli, not Collins, nor Fisher. None of them had arrived yet. Only two people were there besides Dayton. Sparks and his wife. Did Sparky steal his own bat? Would he deliberately get rid of the one thing he needed most to win his bet? No. Couldn't be Sparks.
4: Then it must be... You mean... His own wife?
6: Mrs. Sparks stole that bat. She's the only one left, so Sparky's wife must be the thief. Have ah, ball three, my But Pete's a Mrs. Sparks. Yes, Mr.
4: Queen.
6: Will, will you come here, please?
4: You were wanting me, Mr. Queen. You've heard what
6: I just said. Mrs.
4: Sparks. Lily, why did you do it? Oh, gee, I thought if Sparky lost his pet bat, he'd lose his bets with Collins and Fisher and Pagoli and all the others. I thought that would cure him. But I... Oh, gee, I didn't realize what it would mean to Mac and to Sparky's teammates and all the fans. I well, then I was scared to admit. Doggone it, a foul! Ellery, do we have to tell
6: Sparky? If everything comes out all right, I don't see why, Nicky. Oh, you're a darling. Ah, ah, Hi, ah, ah, oh, Sparky's, it's Sparky's oh, it's oh, Don't forget Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam came through in the clutch, and he always will.
1: Uncle Sam came through in the clutch, and he always will. An exciting Ellery Queen mystery adventure and a win for the Eagles. From Ellery and Nikki, Inspector Queen, and Sergeant Veely, thanks for joining us for a little radio storytelling history on the Appleseed. Fun for me to bring you a mystery in which an important object, a lucky baseball bat, figures prominently on a day when we heard Tim Lowry tell a road trip story to explain how an important object came into his life, a leather jacket with long fringes hanging from the sleeves. And when I say important, I mean important because the object can trigger important memories, bringing the richness of the trip to mind whenever he needs it. That's what Brian's Brazilian postal worker shirt does, too. You heard about that a moment ago as well. And thinking of important objects and thinking of storyteller Tim Lowry, we thought we'd bring you just a little bit of a conversation we had with Tim as we were preparing for today's episode. In this conversation, uh, he was in his home office in South Carolina. We were on a Zoom call. And sitting on his desk was an old white ceramic mug. Important object? Well, I asked him to tell me about it.
2: Oh, yes. Well, it's just a big clunky, heavy, white ceramic mug. I dare say it's army surplus. It's that that kind of clunky and heavy. Sure. And it came from the summer camp that I used to attend when I was a boy and a middle schooler and a teenager. And um, it, it just, every time I sip a little water, it, I'm always rocketed back in my memory to summer camp. We had Kool-Aid in those mugs, but Due to health regulations, there had to be a certain chlorine content in the water. So the Kool-Aid had a distinctive flavor that you never got with Kool-Aid at home at, at summer camp. And we complained about it at the time, but now I can just get a whiff of swimming pool Kool-Aid or swimming pool water. And I think, oh, summer camp Kool-Aid. That's, <laughs> that's what I think about. And when we, we ate family style. So you'd sit down at a big long table, about 10 kids, and there would be uh, counselors at either end of the table. Not always a married couple, but very often it would be a married couple. So it was like your camp mom and dad. And all of that coordination was um, orchestrated by a lady that we called, she didn't know this, but we called her Tinkerbell, because her real name was Mrs. Howard. And she always wore a very lovely dress. I mean, the rest of us were in camp attire, but she ruled in the dining room. And so she always dressed for dinner. She would wear a lovely dress and she had a little brass bell. And if we got a little too rowdy or um, weren't um, being respectful to one another or worse yet, were playing with our food, <laughs> then she would ring that bell and bring the whole dining room to attention and give us a little lecture. I grew up and moved away and uh, was back at camp years later with my wife. My wife grew up there. Her mom and dad were music directors at the camp. So we were back there visiting family. And there is no better place to have a family reunion than camp because someone cleans up for you. Someone else cooks for you. Recreation (laughs) is all planned out. It's perfect. (laughs) We were back there for a family reunion. I went in the kitchen and got one of these old army surplus mugs. There weren't many left. They had moved to other dishes. And I said, I have to have one of those mugs, y'all, because it brings back a flood of memories. They said, oh, sure, take it. We don't care. (laughs) And then I sat down at the lunch table and all the kids came flooding in. And times have changed. No one called them to order. They all went. They went through a buffet line. There was no campus mom and dad to pass the rolls around and make sure you were your table manners. And the noise, it was so loud. And I leaned over to my wife and I said, I never thought I'd say this, but I just longed for a
1: little brass
2: bell and an authoritative figure.
1: <laughs> Tim Lowry telling me a little bit about camp memories, memories preserved in an important object on Tim's desk, an old white ceramic mug. It's been such a pleasure to share these stories with you today. Thanks for Tim Lowry for joining us in the Appleseed studio and for our terrific studio audience for helping to make those storytelling moments special. Join us again on the Appleseed, won't you? You can find us at byuradio.org Appleseed by Googling the Appleseed podcast or by downloading the BYU Radio app. And if you're listening right now to the podcast... Be sure to rate us and give us a review. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.